I want you to turn uh, for the first time in a while to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 16. Matthew 16 is where we'll be this morning, and uh, we're going to return to our study there in Matthew chapter number 16. And so glad you're here. Hope you'll join us after service for our chili cook-off that will take place at my house. There's some directions at the back table. You don't have to bring anything. There will be plenty of food from others who are bringing food and desserts and things like that. And so I want to encourage you to join us for that. That'll be a good time of fellowship. And the weather is certainly perfect for something like this. So uh, so thankful for that. Um, and so hope you'll join us after service. That'll take place after the morning service. And we will not have an evening service tonight. This last week, um, I don't know if this matters to you, but our family hit two big milestones. First one's less important, and I, the second one is more meaningful to me. Uh, the first is that I officially am a truck owner. Um, my wife and I have been praying for a truck for a year and a half, and a friend in Texas uh, took a huge financial loss to sell it to us at a certain price without us even asking him to do that. And so um, I'm super thankful for that milestone And uh, already I've had people questioning why I'm having them haul things to the chili cook-off today because they are truck owners. Uh, And so I know things like that I'll have to do myself now instead of roping Sid into it. Oh, sorry, did I say his name? My bad. That's the first milestone this week. The second is that my oldest daughter, who's only six, started texting me from her mother's phone. And I've uh, begun to wonder, oh no, you know, if my daughter is six years old and she's texting me already with her mother's phone, how many years am I going to have to say no to her asking for her own fun, her own phone to try and text her dad on it? I knew it was Natalie texting me uh, because of the broken grammar and the way too frequent periods in between words. I thought either my wife is under some sort of medicine that has made her very loopy, or it's my six-year-old daughter trying to text me. Um, But man, I know many of you understand this about being a parent, being a grandparent. Those milestones are so fun, aren't they? You've got, of course, birth is a milestone. Uh, Talking is a milestone. Walking, our youngest, Noel, is almost walking. Um, Nat and, and Nora have... Uh, Nat, more so than Nora, started to ride a bike. That's pretty fun and scary all at the same time. And then Natalie, being that she's six and in first grade, things like that, she's starting to read and write and, uh, and text. I mean, all these things. And then you go even further than that, and these are the real scary ones. You know, you're going to have kids who can do their own hair, who can go off to high school, who will someday be learning to drive, graduate, go to college, get married, whatever, all of those things. And for my own sanity, I know some of you know that the time passes quickly. I'm going to pretend all those are really, really far away. But man, is being a parent fun for those reasons. Those are really important things in life, those markers, those milestones. But as important as all of those things are, the most significant milestone that happens in any of our lives is when we come to the correct answer to this question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's the most 
important milestone that'll happen in your life because riding a bike is great, but if you answer that question wrong, it doesn't matter how great this life is, Jesus is pretty clear that the next one won't be as great. And it is that question, who is Jesus, that seems to dominate all of the gospel of Matthew up to this point. It is the subject of Matthew's gospel. He's trying to answer this question, who is Jesus, from many different angles. And really, this morning's sermon, I want to answer two questions from our passage in Matthew 16. Who is Jesus? And why does it matter if you answer that question correctly? What do you miss out on if you don't believe Jesus is who he said he was? What do you stand to gain if you believe the right things about Jesus? I want us to see that in our passage, which is in Matthew 16. Let's read it together in verses 13 through 17 this morning as we read of Peter's milestone confession. This is the word of the Lord, verses 13 through 17 of Matthew 16. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, or Elijah, And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. I told you that our passage answers two questions. Who is Jesus? And why does it matter if you answer that question correctly? That first question, who is Jesus, is the one Matthew has been trying to get us to answer correctly from the very first page of his gospel. In fact, if you go back, and I want you to turn with me back to Matthew chapter number one, we're gonna do a lightning review of where the book of Matthew has been. Matthew is not subtle. He lays out who he thinks Jesus is in verse number one of his gospel. He says, this is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then All of this this gospel is working up to the moment where Peter declares, very similar to what Matthew says here, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And really the passage that we read this morning starts off with Jesus asking his disciples, who do you think I am? Right, that's what verse 13 said. And what we find in the story of Jesus is that this question, who is Jesus, is a question that people are asking from the very moment he's born. From the very moment he exited the womb. Chapter number two tells us that there were rulers, kingmakers, wise men from the east that came to Jerusalem to see Jesus because they knew that Jesus was the king of the Jews. And yet simultaneously there was a Jewish king, Herod, who didn't like the idea of Jesus being the king of the Jews. 
Chapter three, verse 13 through 17, look at there with me. John the Baptist is wrestling with this question because he says in chapter three, uh, verse number 14, why on earth are you having me baptize you? You should be baptizing me. And it's in that scene of John baptizing Jesus that a voice from heaven speaks down in verse number 17 and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Then Matthew goes on to record Jesus's inaugural sermon, the sermon of the kingdom. We call it the Sermon on the Mount, which takes up chapters five through seven of Matthew's gospel. And look at chapter seven, verse 28. After everybody hears this sermon from Jesus, they're asking this question, who is Jesus? And they're trying to answer it in their own minds when they say in verse 28 of Matthew seven, that when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Who's Jesus, they say? I don't know, but he seems to have more authority than the average religious teacher of our day. And then in chapter eight, verse 27, it's the first time Jesus exerts his power in Matthew's gospel over nature and he calms the storm. And notice the question the disciples are asking in verse 27 of Matthew eight. It says that the men marveled saying, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? Who is this guy? But ironically, just a few verses later, though the disciples aren't really quite sure who Jesus is, the demons know exactly who he is because notice in verse 29 of Matthew 8 that the demons correctly identify Jesus with the same title Peter will use in our passage. And they say, what have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of God? And then we find all throughout the story that the Pharisees are the people who definitely refuse to acknowledge who Jesus is. I mean, who is this guy, they're asking, that touches unclean people, but instead of becoming unclean himself, he makes them clean. Who is this guy who has the gall to violate thousands of years of religious tradition? In fact, at one point in Matthew's gospel, they decide to explain who is Jesus by saying, the only explanation we can come up to is that this man's supernatural power comes from the devil himself. We recognize that as Matthew's telling us the story that Jesus, he seemed to share some traits of the savior and the king that the people of the Jews expected, but he was very different. Which is why in chapter 11, verse number three, his own cousin, the man who seemed to identify who he was, the man who heard the voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son, that man, John the Baptist, is confused so much so that in chapter 11, verse three, he asks, art thou he that should come or do we look for another? As Jesus continued to heal and teach, his identity started to get more clear in the minds of some of the population. Look at chapter 12, verse 23. There are people who began to use what we would call messianic terms, terms that they would ascribe to the promised savior of the Old Testament, the Messiah, when in chapter 12, verse 23, they are amazed and they say, is not this the son of David? 
But on the other hand, in chapter 13, verse 55, Jesus' hometown, even though they were presented with all the same evidence, his authoritative teaching, his miracle-working power, they couldn't shake the fact that Jesus was still a hometown boy, that they knew his brothers and his sisters. And so in chapter 13, verse 55, that's really the identity they ascribe to them. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? This guy can't be anything special. We know his whole family. But nonetheless, Jesus' fame continued to spread. And that same king who had locked up John the Baptist in chapter 13 hears of Jesus and he's trying to come to his mind, who is this Jesus? And because Jesus' preaching reminded him so much of his old nemesis, John, because Jesus was proclaiming a coming kingdom, Jesus was preaching a message of repentance, that Herod's uh, conclusion to this question, who is Jesus, is he comes to the conclusion in chapter 14, verse number two, that this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. Ironically, Herod got it half right because later Jesus would rise from the dead. But while everyone seems to be confused, Matthew's telling the story that the disciples are getting more and more clarity about who Jesus is, which is why after Jesus does another miracle calming the seas, look at chapter 14, verse 33, the disciples declare in verse 33, of a truth, thou art the son of God, and they even bow down and worship him. Now, it wasn't blasphemy to call a man the son of David or the Messiah. But nobody in Jewish religion but God himself should be worshiped. Clearly, the disciples are figuring out who Jesus is, but it's not just Jesus' closest followers who are figuring out who he is. In chapter 15, Jesus is going to outsider territory. He's leaving Jewish territory. He's going to Gentile territory, and he's encountering people who are not the people of God, so to speak. And we see in chapter 15, verse number 22, that here's this Gentile woman, and she, in a moment... Not a lot of exposure to Jesus. She comes to a moment of clarity and she expresses the identity of Jesus in a way that's clearer than almost any other Jewish person in the whole gospel has expressed it. Because look at her response to Jesus in verse 22. Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. She recognizes Jesus is her Lord. She recognizes Jesus is the promised son of David. But then even after her persistence, <clears throat> she even has a good understanding of God's promise to bless the Gentiles because she says in verse 26, or sorry, verse 27, that even the crumbs of the table are meant to feed the dogs, and Jesus subsequently blesses her and says in verse 28, O woman, great is thy faith. Everyone seems to be coming to an idea of who Jesus is. Jesus is the son of David. He's the son of God. He is a man with great authority. He may very well be the promised Messiah, even though he's kind of very different than what they expected. But there's still, in Matthew's gospel, one group that's holding out. 
Who's that group that's holding out? The Pharisees. And in chapter 16, verse number one, they basically come to him and say, we'll believe that you're the son of God and the savior like you say you are, but we need a little more proof. Proof? Where have they been the whole gospel? This man's calmed the seas twice. He's fed thousands of people twice. He's raised people from the dead. He's healed um, terminal illnesses. This guy has even claimed to forgive sins. What kind of proof does someone need if that isn't enough proof? They tell Jesus, well, we won't believe unless you give us better proof. You know what Jesus says in chapter 16? He doesn't give them proof. He essentially says this, if you can read the weather patterns of the sky, how on earth can you not figure out who I am? Jesus says, I don't give proof to people who refuse to believe the proof I've already given them. And that's why this passage we came to today in our reading in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17, really is a pinnacle of Matthew's gospel. Matthew's really the only one who records it quite like this. And so the disciples in verse 14 summarize what what the crowds are thinking about Jesus. He says in verse 13, who do men say that I am? And they respond, well, some say you're John the Baptist, right? It's like Herod, who thought John the Baptist was risen from the dead. I think it's because both those guys preached against sin and they had a common nemesis in the Pharisees. So maybe he's John the Baptist, people are thinking. Some say that Jesus was Elijah. Now that to us as like, you know, 21st century readers, we're like, why on earth are they just picking a random guy, Elijah, and thinking Jesus is him? Well, if you read the story of Elijah, you recognize that more miracles were done in the time of Elijah than any other time except the time of Moses. And Jesus's miracles seem to be very similar. The only other person who rose children from the dead, like Jesus, was Elijah. The only other person who had done miracles with bread other than God himself in the wilderness, was Elijah. And so people are looking at the miracles of Jesus, and of course, he's clearly a prophet with authority from heaven, and so they think, this must be Elijah. And of course, Malachi 3 says that Elijah would come before the return of the Messiah. Some people say Jesus is Jeremiah or some sort of other prophet. Clearly, he spoke with the authority of someone who heard from God. Now listen, These are all really decent answers, but they're not quite right. And I want to warn you this morning that you may think Jesus is a good man. You may think he's a good teacher. You may even believe that Jesus was a miracle worker. You may believe Jesus was a holy man, as some people call him. But what our passage teaches us is that believing those types of things about Jesus isn't enough. No, Jesus himself didn't think it was enough because even after the disciples respond this way and say, this is how the crowds think of you, they think you're some holy man or a prophet or a miracle worker, he digs in a little bit more in verse number 15 of chapter 16. Look at his question. He saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? 
I'm not interested in people who think I'm a prophet or a miracle worker. Because I'm more than that. And it's Peter who, speaking on behalf of the group, because Jesus is asking in the plural, in verse 15, who do all of you say that I am? Peter, as we've come to know him, is the guy who speaks up first, you know? And Peter answers and says in verse number 16, who the disciples and himself think that Jesus is. He says in verse 16, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Who is Jesus? Well, Matthew's trying to show us Jesus is the promised savior and the son of God. Now, it's easy for us to read Peter's declaration, verse 16, and just read past it. But these are very significant words. They mean something. He calls Jesus the Christ. Notice that that's a proper noun. You are the, the Christ. That word Christ is the translation of, a, of the Greek word Christos, which is the word they would use for the Messiah. And I know we often call Jesus often, it's either Jesus or Jesus Christ. Listen, Christ is not his last name. It's a title. In fact, it's a very loaded title. It means something richly. That's why the word Christ is the very first description of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. That's the very first thing he says about this Jesus guy. He says in verse number one of chapter one that he is Jesus Christ. This is the term that they would use for the promised savior and king. It means anointed one. It was the term in their day that they used to describe the figure that Israel believed would come to restore the kingdom of Israel. You see, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, the Old Testament is dominated by this promise of a promised descendant, first from Eve and then Abraham and then David, who would uh, reign over the throne of Israel, who would bring peace back to Israel and would give Israel the prominence that it had in the days of David. But right now, and Peter in their day, in Matthew 16, they don't have a nation. No, they're subjected to the Roman government. They kind of have this dual government structure that's really crazy and hard to understand. If you read into it, they have their own local government, but ultimately it's the Romans who are really in charge of most of the other stuff. So they are crying out to God as a people. We need someone to deliver us from this Roman oppression so that we can have our kingdom once again. We need this savior who will sit on the throne and reign as a king and restore the kingdom back to Israel. And Peter is looking at Jesus and he's seeing in Jesus and so are the other disciples that Jesus is both savior and king. How could he not? How do you not believe a guy's a savior when he saves you from certain death in the middle of a storm? How do you not believe a guy is a savior when he saves people from incurable diseases? When he saves people from their own sin, when he saves people from death itself? Well, the reason a lot of people couldn't believe this is because Jesus was a savior and a king. He was a very different type of king than the one he expected. It was pretty clear, and it was gonna be more clear, especially like a few verses down, that this king, King Jesus, was not after 
a physical kingdom. No, actually, he would die. What kind of king is that? Sitting on the throne forever is what the Bible says, and yet Jesus says he's going to die. But yet Peter cuts past all of that and recognizes that there's no other explanation than the fact that Jesus is king and he is savior. And then he calls him, look at verse 16 again, or sorry, verse 18. He calls him the son, sorry, verse 16, the son of the living God. Now calling someone the Messiah, not super unique. A lot of other people tried and claimed to be a Messiah. But for Peter to tell Jesus that he believed he was the son of the living God, in the Jewish court system, he could be executed for blasphemy. Interestingly, Matthew points out in verse 13 that this is happening in Caesarea Philippi, which literally, the place where it happened, is surrounded by what the Jews would call dead idols. And it's as if Peter's saying to Jesus that Jesus is not some idol. He is the son of the living God. And how could he not? Because it was Peter who was there in Matthew 3 when a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It was Peter who saw Jesus do miracles that clearly required the power of God. In fact, that's why Jesus cast out so many demons to prove that he was not empowered by the devil. He was empowered by God himself. And Peter had walked with Jesus for quite a while now. And here's a guy who's calling God his father. And as a Jew, you would have expected this guy to be struck dead if he was lying. Because you can't call God your father and get away with it. But he says, God is my father. And he's still walking and living and breathing. There's no other conclusion. In fact, what's interesting, it's not just Peter who came to this conclusion about Jesus. Satan himself calls Jesus the son of God at chapter four, verse six. The demons, as we read earlier, called Jesus the son of God in chapter eight, verse 29. Friend, you and I, we may not be able to see Jesus walking around and see all of his miracles. Wouldn't that be awesome? if we could see that. But what Matthew is trying to do is the reason he wrote this gospel, the reason I'm preaching this gospel is so that you and I, as we hear recorded stories of who Jesus was, that we would come to the same conclusion about Jesus. That you and I in our minds would believe that he is the promised savior and the son of God. That's what God wants you to recognize about his son, Jesus Christ. That you need to believe that he is indeed the son of God and he is indeed a king and a savior. I wonder this morning if you believe that. Now listen, Christians, we shouldn't be too hard on people who've not yet come to that understanding because we're in chapter 16 and Peter just now gets it right. I fear sometimes in our evangelism, we're too quick. We think a 10-minute gospel conversation, someone can go from Matthew chapter 1 to Matthew chapter 16. But here as disciples, and they're seeing thing after thing after thing, miracle after miracle after miracle, and they're still trying to piece together in their minds who Jesus is. Friend, be patient. 
with those you love and those you're trying to win to Christ who don't quite see it yet. Sometimes we need good old-fashioned time. But you're a Christian here this morning. I assume several of you, many of you maybe. And I don't think it's, it's a controversial thing for me to say that Jesus is the promised Savior and Son of God. How many of us would agree with that? He's the promised Savior and the Son of God. But can I help you this morning? Those titles mean something to you tomorrow. They mean something. Because ironically, uh, Peter's going to call Jesus the king in this passage. But like five verses later, he's going to, to his king's face, rebuke him and tell him he's wrong about his plan to suffer and die. Friend, you can admit that Jesus is the promised savior. He's the anointed one. He's the king. But if you actually believe that, it will show up in your submission to his commands and his words. In fact, that's what Matthew's been showing us all throughout his gospel. He's not been just showing us that Jesus is a king. No, he's showing us that Jesus is a king who's given us commands. I read through the gospel of Matthew. And he's told us as, his, as our king to worship from the heart rather than for show. As a king, he's commanded us to live with a pure heart. As a king, he's commanded us to trust in him rather than in our material needs. As our king, he's commanded us to be people who live by our word. As our king, he's told us to love God's word and submit ourselves to God's word even more than our religious traditions. As our king, he's told us to love him more than money. And as our king, he's commanded us to spread his gospel. If you believe Jesus is king, show it not just with your words, but with your actions. If you believe Jesus is king, don't negotiate like Peter does a few verses later. Submit and obey his commands, even as difficult as they may be. But if you believe Jesus is a savior, how many of us are like the disciples who in one breath will say, truly, this is the son of God, but in the next breath, we'll be in the middle of a storm crying out and scared out of our minds because we have no way how we're gonna make, we have no way to figure out how we're gonna make it out of this thing. We'll believe Jesus will save us from death and hell itself, but the moment we enter into like some small financial difficulty or things aren't going quite right at home, we're really worried because we're not quite sure how we're gonna get out of it. Friend, if Jesus is a savior, that doesn't just mean you believe him to save you from your sins. That means you believe he'll take care of everything that goes wrong in your life. That's why Jesus said to his disciples at one point later on in Matthew's gospel, oh, ye of little faith. How did you not understand the miracle of the loaves? You know what he's saying? You saw my power there. Why aren't you believing my power right now? 
How on earth does somebody come to this recognition of who Jesus is? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 17 that you and I, if we have come to a proper understanding of who Jesus is, look at verse 17. He says, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, and here's the key, flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven. You know what Jesus is saying? That if you have come to a proper understanding of who Jesus is, you did not come to that by your own reasoning. You did not figure out your way to Jesus. You didn't put all the facts together and that's all it was, was just a bunch of facts put together. No, what Jesus is saying is even to Simon, who's been there for everything, from the moment Jesus started his public ministry, Simon has been there. And yet he's come to this recognition, not by his own mental effort, but by the grace of Christ. You want to find something to be thankful for in thankful November? Thank God that he gave you the grace to properly understand who Jesus was. Because if it wasn't for the grace of Christ, you would not believe who Jesus is properly. If you have come to the decision that Jesus is the Christ and the son of the living God, you owe that decision to God, not yourself. Our passage is calling us to see who Jesus is. He is the promised savior. But our passage also shows us what's at stake if we get this right. And all that is contained in one little word, verse 17, when Jesus responds to Simon. What does he say to him? After his confession, he says, and then Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, or son of Jonah. Blessed art thou. What is Jesus doing here? He's returning Peter's proclamation with a blessing. There's so many wonderful parallel statements in this account. Here Peter is saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And essentially what Jesus is saying is, you are Simon, son of Jonah, and you are blessed. Now, we use this word blessed in a lot of different ways that the Bible doesn't use it, right? We say that we're blessed, you know, when we, we bless our food, whatever that means, right? I don't know if that means unhealthy food becomes healthy, but for whatever reason, we say, God, bless this food. We ask God to bless inanimate objects, bless this home, bless our dog. Sometimes we say blessing is tied to financial prosperity. We will say, God blessed me with a financial raise going into 2024. But Jesus is using this word very differently. Blessed is the way, and if you read Matthew's gospel, just search the word blessed in Matthew's gospel. And Jesus always uses the word blessed to describe those who are a part of his kingdom. Do you remember Matthew 5? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then what does Jesus say? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he repeats that later on at the end. Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says that those who are blessed in his sermon in Matthew 5 would be those who would inherit the earth, which is the land promise that God has promised for those in his kingdom. 
He said that those who were blessed would be satisfied forever rather than being hungry. He said those who are blessed would see God. Those who are blessed would receive mercy from God. Chapter 11, verse six, Jesus said those who are blessed were those who believed in him rather than disbelieving in him. Those who were blessed in chapter 13, verse 16, were those who had opened their ears to the gospel rather than closing them. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that those who acknowledge Jesus as their king are blessed with his kingdom. Why should you acknowledge Jesus as your king and as God? Because there is no other way to enter into his heavenly kingdom than by properly acknowledging the authority of the one who has the keys. It's a very intimate thing to allow people into our homes, isn't it? It's a very, very intimate thing. Most people, uh, that's kind of gone by the wayside, this hospitality thing. You don't just let anybody into your home. Who do, you, who do we let into our homes? People we have a relationship with. Friend, listen very carefully, because I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some who haven't properly acknowledged Jesus as their king, not just with their words, but with their life. Do you really think that those who spurn the authority of Jesus their whole life are gonna be let into Jesus' house when they die? Those who refuse to acknowledge the things Jesus said about, about himself? Do we really think those folks will be in heaven? And I'm, not, I'm not condemning or being better than. I recognize that the, re the recognition of Jesus as my king came from God himself. But we cannot pretend that we can enter his kingdom while living like his kingdom doesn't matter our whole life. There's no other assurance that you and I can have that heaven will be our home than the assurance that we have confessed and lived as if Jesus is our Lord. And God is the judge of that, not me. Maybe there's some here today and you've, you may be coming on a journey of understanding who Jesus is. Little by little, he's putting pieces together to emphasize who he is. I just wanna kindly say to you, there's no better day than today to recognize Jesus as your Lord and King. But if you do believe him, maybe this morning you can at least reflect on those blessings that are in store for you if you have acknowledged like Peter that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Man, read Matthew 5, and I know we often read the Beatitudes thinking of what we should do, and that's true. But I wanna encourage you, read Matthew 5 verses, I don't know what it is, Colleen knows because the kids are memorizing it, 3 through 12 or something like that. Read that and just read the last half and just thank God for each one of those blessings. Each morning this week, read one of those Beatitudes and say, this is mine and really think about what that means. What does it mean that yours is the kingdom of heaven? What does it mean that you will see God? What does it mean that you will inherit the earth? We are truly Blessed, consider 
all of the things non-Christians mourn while God promises in his Beatitudes to give you comfort as his child. Consider the inheritance that is yours through Christ and how that heavenly inheritance should motivate heavenly living. Consider that if you've come to be a child of Christ, he can truly satisfy every need. Consider how profound it is that he calls you a son or a daughter of God. Who is Jesus? Well, your answer to that question is the most important decision you will ever make. And if you haven't chosen to recognize him as your Lord and King, today is the day to do so. But if you have, consider the blessing that he's opened your heart to the gospel and that he's promised you his kingdom as his child. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truth of